Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. We are the Forsaken. Your queen appreciates your allegiance. We are the Forsaken. Grand Nagus. Hello and welcome to Corpse Run Radio, episode 113. I hope you're all doing fine in these challenging times that we're in at the moment. Today, the content I've collected for you ranges from NPCs that we might see in Shadowlands and NPCs that are a little odd through Ashara and her singing talents to some very recent changes that Blizzard has made to the beta with regards to the conduit and lifebind system that they created for the Covenants. We will have Soul Breezy tell us a little about that followed by some things that I would like to add to it like my point of view on it since some of the changes I've been advocating for as well. So I'm quite happy to see some of that come to the beta next week. But more on that after Sol has had his say. Charm, as I said, has a song for us. Doron's Movies has a list of villains that he might like to see in the Shadowlands. Hero Maradex has an oddball video or the audio thereof. And then at the end, and this I would like to emphasize, and I'm going to give a warning at the end as well. I have a video from Noble 87 that talks about the Pantheon of Death, which is, in my opinion, for some people, lower spoilers. So I'm going to put it at the very end of the podcast with a warning so you can stop listening at that point and there will be no more content so you can just stop listening if you're not interested in spoilers. That's how I'm going to do it from now on whenever there's something that people might want to hear because they don't care about spoilers but others do. I'm going to put it at the very end of the show so people can just stop at that point and they won't get spoiled. So without further ado, let's start with Hero Maritex's top 10 oddball NPCs in World of Warcraft. Here is Hero Maritex. In this video, we'll be going over NPCs in WoW who are memorable for their oddball behaviors, usually because they do something humorous or because they're incredibly dumb. And at number 10, we have Calder Grey who we first meet in the Southern Barrens in Cataclysm. This forsaken NPC is a quest giver who basically has you gather parts for him to create an abomination. And if you talk to him, he'll tell you how he was unceremoniously booted from Orgrimmar for no reason. 
and how that made him drop a whole bunch of his fresh jars of body parts on his way out, which no one paid him for, acting as if he was some kind of monster. But fortunately, he was able to continue his work in the Southern Barrens, so he has you go out and just pick out body parts. It doesn't matter which ones, orcs, humans, they're all the same ones when they're sewn together. Then he'll also tell you to go out and collect a Kodo's heart and an Alliance officer's brain to complete his process, where he then puts them all together into an abomination and lets them off into the world, saying lines like, Go forth, my beautiful angel. Ah, it is so very sad when one's child leaves the nest, isn't it? He's also seen again in the Crucible of Carnage, where you can fight one of his abominations, and again in Mount Hyjal during a daily quest, which involves a lot of NPCs from Cataclysm Zones. And he's also a follower in Warlords of Draenor, which can be obtained randomly when recruiting NPCs from the Lunar Fallen. Now, there's nothing super special about this NPC. It's not a very important lore character, and only shows up a handful of times outside of his introduction. And that's kind of what all of these NPCs are going to be like. Just one-off characters who say and do oddball things, and are not very lore-significant. And at number 9, we have Lunk from the Searing Gorge. This is an ogre who comes from Badlands and wants to go on an adventure, so we'll first ask you to go retrieve some robot parts for him. But when you come back, he's horrified to learn that you killed the robots in order to obtain those parts, and then we'll run off. And at another point through the zone, when you're on a quest to kill some spiders for their venom, he'll show up and offer you to extract the venom without having to kill them by riding on their backs so that you can pick off the venom from his stomach. And throughout the zone, he basically just offers you alternatives to completing quests that don't involve killing things, and is routinely horrified at your willingness to just kill anything for almost no reason. Lunk is a pretty funny reference to the fact that players do kill a crap ton of things in order to complete their quests, when it's probably not something they should be doing. The average adventurer probably kills more things in their time getting to max level than any of the bad guys they face in the endgame even if most of what you kill is animals and bad things. Lunk also shows up as an NPC for the Mount Hyjal daily quest, just like a lot of the memorable NPCs added in Cataclysm, and only heals when you go out on adventures with you. He also showed up in the Lunar Fall Inn in your garrison, and would give you a quest to go into an ogre dungeon or to retrieve a family heirloom. And again, the Lunar Fall Inn has lots of memorable NPCs from history, so you'll be seeing this a lot in this list as it continues. And at number 8, we have Bud. This is an NPC introduced in the Burning Crusade, which has a quest for you to go to Zulaman in order to complete some tasks for him. One of them is retrieving the blood from Zul'jin himself. All the while, he is constantly berating the character and saying things like he could do it all himself and much easier too. After you give him the blood, he'll take it and throw it into a nearby building to claim the kill for himself, which promptly causes a vengeful spirit to come down and set him on fire, which causes him to go insane. Alliance players will see him in Wrath of the Lich King in the Grizzly Hills, wearing a troll mask. The quest giver will tell you that he's kind of lost his mind, but that he is useful as troll bait. He's seen again in the Cataclysm on a boat that Alliance players take in order to go to Vashir, where he spots something shiny in the water and jumps off the boat right before it gets attacked. And then he also has another quest in that zone where he has you kill a big shark for him. He appears in the intro quest to Oldham, where he suggests you guys should pretend to be Tolvir in order to escape which actually ends up working, and the last appearance of Bud was in the garrison, in the Lunarfall Inn, as he had a quest for you to go into the Iron Docks in order to get something shiny for him. All while his mind is still probably not all there, which is part of the reason why this character is somewhat well-liked to an extent. He definitely fits the oddball theme and shows up a lot. And at number 7, we have Johnny Awesome. This NPC is introduced in the Cataclysm through the famous quest Welcome to the Machine 
where you act as a quest giver and tell him to go out to the sludge fields in order to help out Warden Stillwater. And Johnny Awesome was supposed to be made in the likeness of the stereotypical bad but experienced WoW player who's leveling as a hunter, as that was thought to be an easy class back in the day, and is also a very geared alt as he's fully equipped with heirlooms and even has a celestial steed mount. As back in the day, the Celestial Steed was the only mount that could be used at all levels and by all of your alts, before that was made baseline sometime later on. So the average hardcore player that made alts would have been fully decked out in heirlooms and had the Celestial Steed. And Johnny Awesome would get mad when you told him you only had one quest for him, and would ask you if maybe you had some other quest to collect some bear asses or to stop a great apocalypse. Then later on, while questing through the Hillsbred foothills for yourself, you run into Johnny Awesome again, and you find him crying next to Apothecary Lydon, as the crazy Warden Stillwater had his horse killed, and then used his presence as torture for Lydon, since he was so annoying. So you help them out, and then he goes on his way. Johnny Awesome was a very liked character though, and appears many more times throughout WoW, and in Warlords of Draenor, he even appears in the Lunar Fall Inn as a quest giver. And in Legion, he gets converted into a Brawler's Guild boss, and even has a quest associated to him where you have to return a dropped Invincible from the Lich King that he apparently forgot to loot. And then when you do find him, he tells you the reason he didn't loot it was because he already had one, and he wanted you to take a head of Mimron to the grave of his old mount since it was his favorite toy. And he's also seen AFK a couple of times whenever he appears in the game and raid groups, once in front of the Molten Front, and again during the Black Temple-like quest, where you play as Illidan fighting against the raid group that kills him. And at number 6, we have Dumas. This is another NPC which was added in the Cataclysm and also appears in the Welcome to the Machine quest, as he's one of three players you have to give a quest to. Dumas is supposed to be the stereotypical new WoW player, as he doesn't know much about the geography or lore of the place, as you tell him to go to Terran Mill and he believes it to be located in the Baron somewhere. He also speaks in all caps and was one of the undead raised by Sylvanas in front of Garrosh during the Silver Pine quest chain, as he makes references to this, as some of his dialogue suggests that he was there when Sylvanas killed Worgen, and he was also there when Sylvanas was talking to the big brown orc. Later on in the Hillsbred Foothills, you'll run into him like you do the other two NPCs you give quests to, and he got himself lost in a mine full of spiders, so you have to save him and escort him out. Although he's so bad at what he's doing that he constantly pulls things and basically tries to get himself killed. No one knows what happened to Dumas after this quest. He most likely got lost trying to go do something else, but he is a fan favorite character despite only appearing in two quests in a random horde zone. Also, his name sounds very similar to a curse word which is commonly used to refer to someone who has probably done a less than intelligent thing, which is probably why people like him as well. And at number 5, we have Gunther Arcanus. This is a random undead in the middle of the undead starting zone, which doesn't actually have any quests associated to him in the live version of the game. However, in Classic WoW, you can actually talk to him and complete a small quest chain for him, where you basically have to prove to him that not all the undead are blind, mind-controlled servants of the Lich King, and that a large faction has broken free. After which, you're able to convince him to join the Forsaken and they gain a powerful necromancer. Now, one would wonder why this NPC is in the live version of the game at all if they removed his quest, as he doesn't even have dialogue options to talk to him. However, in the beta version of Cataclysm, when they revamped the zone for the first time, they did actually update his quest chain, since the new starting zone takes place after the Lich King is defeated. When you talk to Gunther in the Cataclysm beta, the quest is still kind of the same, where he thinks you're probably a member of the Lich King's army, 
and doesn't know if the Scourge is still around or not. And when you manage to prove to him that you're not part of the Scourge, he does still say you're a puppet of the Banshee Queen, which opened up some interesting dialogue about how working for Sylvanas was probably not that much different for working for the Lich King. Whatever the case, you are able to eventually convince him to join the Forsaken at the end of the quest chain. And you're even given a quest to talk directly to Sylvanas to tell her that you were able to acquire Gunther Arcanus as part of the Forsaken. And she is very thankful for grabbing such a powerful member. Basically, he's just a powerful lich that you're able to convince to join your cause, and has gained a little bit of notoriety for being a random strong member of the Horde that doesn't have any major lore associated to him, or isn't involved in the lore in any major way. Just kind of a super important NPC out in the middle of nowhere that Blizzard kind of forgot about, which is what makes him so interesting. And at number 4, we have Maximilian of Northshire. This is a quest giver located in the Ungoro Crater who is a very disillusioned man who thinks all of the dinosaurs around him are actually dragons, and has you go out on a couple of quests in order to save people he thinks are in trouble, but actually just puts them into more danger. And the quest chain ends with you running away from a T-Rex while he throws all of his clothes at it to get it off its track. Like with most humorous characters, he was well loved by the community, so he was brought back in future expansions. He shows up in the Frostwall Tavern in Warlords of Draenor in order to offer some quests, then shows up in Legion and can be recruited as a follower if you're a paladin, and can even be seen fighting demons during demon invasions in High Mountain. It's pretty rare for joke characters to be added to the story in such a way that they also become a follower that can be recruited as part of the gameplay, which really puts him into legendary status when it comes to favorite characters in WoW, and is an excellent example of what this list is all about. And at number 3, we have Zenkiki the Druid. Just like with pretty much every other character on this list so far, save Gunther Arcanus, you first meet Zenkiki in a quest in Cataclysm, in the zone of the Western Plaguelands, where you're given the task of helping train Zenkiki since he's kind of an incompetent druid. Where you go out with him, he'll occasionally help you out in fighting the NPCs you need for the quest, and will sometimes damage himself by spamming moonfires in the wrong location. And like most loved NPCs from Cataclysm, he shows up later on in Mount Hydral fighting against Ragnaros, is brought over to Warlords of Draenor as a quest giver in the Lunar Fall or Frostwall Tavern, and shows up again in Legion in the Druid Order Hall. Although his appearances don't stop there, he also shows up again in BFA as part of the Cenarian Circle, and their reinforcements trying to heal the wounds in Silthus, as you can see him near Magni every time we go to the Chamber of the Heart, just hanging out with other druids, pretending like he's not incompetent. Out of all the oddball NPCs, Zenkiki shows up probably the most, mainly because a lot of the things have been involving druids, and he is an excellent NPC to just place in whenever they need some comic relief. And at number 2, we have Milhouse Manastorm. Milhouse Manastorm first appears as an NPC in the Architraz dungeon in the Burning Crusade, as one of the options in the final fight to appear instead of an extra mini-boss, and will help you fight the final boss by casting his major abilities. And some people grew to like his overconfident dialogue options, so he made a return in the Cataclysm, as it turns out, he joined the Twilight's Hammer Cult, and even appears in the Stonecore Dungeon, and has a whole host of followers at his command, though they all immediately get destroyed by the first boss of the dungeon who just knocks them all out of the way. Then in Mists of Pandaria, when they introduce the Brawler's Guild, Milhouse Manastorm shows up as one of the bosses you can fight, stating that Stonecore was merely a setback. In Warlords of Draenor, he shows up in the Lunarfall Inn when you advance it to level 2. However, not as a daily quest giver, Instead, as a quest that allows him to join your garrison, as he tells you he's changed his ways and needs help collecting a piece of equipment for his humanitarian projects. 
and then you can send him off on missions, and he was actually a pretty useful follower to have back in the day, since he started off as epic and at max level. Then in Legion, he also becomes a follower for the Mage class, and is involved in a couple of quests required to advance the class campaign, and even reveals that his wife is imprisoned in the Violent Hold, named Maleficent Manastorm, who is one of the available heroes to play in Hearthstone Battlegrounds, which is kind of hilarious that an offshoot of a minor character that people liked made it into Hearthstone as one of the main playable characters in one of their modes, which Millhouse Manastorm is also part of that as well. He was also one of the strongest heroes you could pick in Battlegrounds for a while, and is also involved in a lot of other things in Legion. Blizzard loves to add Millhouse Mana Storm whenever they can. There's also a toy item that lets you transform into Millhouse, which none of the other NPCs have. Millhouse Mana Storm was a joke character added that kind of took a life of his own, and is probably one of the more well-known joke characters to the common WoW player base. I'm pretty sure many people have heard of him, even if they haven't heard of any of the other NPCs I talked about so far. Save probably Gunther Arcana since he shows up quite a bit in some of my other videos. However, the number one spot on this list was definitely the NPC I had in mind when I first started writing this video, and I think he definitely edges out Milhouse Manastorm, even if he's not anywhere near as well known or featured in the game. And at number one, we have Crow Threadstrong, more commonly known as the Fruit Vendor. Crow Threadstrong is an NPC located in Shathtrath, introduced in the Burning Crusade expansion, who simply runs a leatherworking shop and sells leatherworking supplies to players, but he's very well known for yelling at the fruit vendor, and if you ever wait in Shantrath for an amount of time, you'll be able to read his dialogues as he's constantly yelling at this imagined fruit vendor. Where he'll say things like, Fruit vendor, your cart is still in our way. We will give you one more hour to move it from our area. Do not test our patience anymore. Does the fruit vendor not value his life? You are running out of time, fruit vendor. Ha, huh, I crushed an apple. Fruit Vendor, this will not be the last. However, Croat doesn't know that this cart belongs to Granny Smith, and thinks it belongs to a fellow orc named Dermari, and doesn't believe her when she keeps telling him who the cart actually belongs to. As the expansion progressed, Blizzard actually added new dialogues to him with three of the Burning Crusade patches, where he just continues his tirade of yelling at the supposed Fruit Vendor, and telling her to get the cart out of his way, saying that her ogre bodyguard doesn't scare him. In the Cataclysm, he and Dermari can sometimes randomly be shown together in the Darkmoon Fair, where he relishes in the fact that there's no apple carts to be seen. Apparently, Crow came into existence because of a miscommunication during the development of Shatrath, where they accidentally decorated the leatherworking area with a fruit cart, but due to time constraints and not noticing it soon enough, they didn't have enough time to change it, so instead the designers responsible for the NPC just came up with a backstory to explain it away which is where the dialogues with them constantly yelling at the fruit vendor came into existence, and people loved it so much they kept updating the story and including him in future expansions. In Warlords of Draenor, he's one of the random NPCs that can show up when you see the photobomb toy. He also appears in the Frostwall Tavern as a quest giver, with one of the quests he gives you awarding you the Fruit Basket toy, which allows you to throw fruit at an enemy NPC in order to tag them for combat, which was actually a pretty important toy when it comes to the history of WoW. You see, this toy gives melee classes a way to tag mobs that are at range, since it has a 30-yard range and puts them in combat. But also, since this toy doesn't do any damage, during Warlords of Draenor it was used inside raids in order to proc the activation of trinkets before combat, since it could be used against certain things in order to be counted as an attack without actually doing any damage. And it was so useful that Blizzard had to hotfix the toy to no longer work inside raid instances. And then later on, they kind of made it so any combat-capable toys no longer worked inside instances, and a lot of those hotfixes can be directly related back to the fruit basket, 
which is funny that an item given to a joke character indirectly made its mark on the game in an actual, tangible way. Now, while Crow Threat Strong hasn't shown up again since Warlords of Draenor, he did briefly appear in the Legion Alpha in the Hall of Shadows, which was the Rogue's Order Hall. While he was removed, they did leave Granny Smith there, who was the original fruit vendor that Crow Threat Strong never knew about. And it's a wonder why they didn't include him as well, but then again it doesn't really make sense that Granny Smith was there in the first place, so that's kind of an understandable exclusion. Alright, and that's the video. Do you know of any other oddball NPCs that should have made this list that I may have missed? If so, I'd love to hear about them down in the comments, for potential future videos similar to this one. This video was edited by The Flying Buttress, links to his channel and stuff in the video description if you liked his work. Thank you, Hero Maledex. Yeah, Gunther Arcanus for me is uh, a special NPC as well. When I noticed that they had not kept the quest chain in there, it was kind of sad for me. I always like to go out to that island to do the quest there. The fact that you would have gotten to recruit him for the Dark Lady would have been really nice, in my opinion. But obviously that wasn't to be. I'm just glad that we have the opportunity to play the quest chain on Classic now. So it's not totally lost. But again, I've talked about that at great length. All the retail versus Classic content lack of content, all that stuff, so I'm not going to do that again here. So next we have Soul So Breezy's segment about the conduit changes that I hinted at earlier. Here's Soul So Breezy. I didn't read the whole thing yet. I only read like the top part and I saw that the Discord channel was like, um, OMG blowing up with like, uh, you know, blowing up with activity and, and all this other stuff. So I'm going to read this announcement about conduits semi live. I already read this part, but um, I haven't read the rest yet. And then I'm going to react to it. And it's pretty much mostly good news, I think. And we're going to just kind of kind of go from there. So let's start reading, folks. Let's do this. Starting next week. In the Shadowlands beta, we will begin introducing a series of updates to the Soulbind system to add a persistent collection system for conduits. Since the Soulbind system was unveiled in the alpha and discussed in our developer update, we've heard consistent feedback about the shortcomings of an inventory-based destructible version of conduits, and we agree entirely. Yes. While we feel it's important that there may that there be some friction in moving conduits around, the prospect of uh, the having to re-earn a given conduit, perhaps by chasing a specific dungeon or a raid boss drop, was not particularly appealing to anyone. However, simply removing destructibility without making other changes would have created an inventory management nightmare, especially for players who enjoy playing multiple specializations. Once this new, once this new system in play, is in place, conduits will work like this. Conduits will continue to be items that can be earned from a wide variety of endgame content like dungeons, PvP, raids, reputations, world quests, and of course, etc. The power of their effects will increase with the item level of the conduit. Instead of placing a conduit directly into a given soulbind tree, you'll, be, you'll bring it back to your sanctum where you can add it to a permanent collection. 
there will be more than one source for most conduits to increase flexibility in acquisition and accessibility across different playstyles. Earning a more powerful version of a conduit you already have will simply upgrade that conduit in your collection. At its core, the Soulbinding system aims to give you the freedom to essentially build your own talent tree for yourself. Each Soulbind offers a range of fixed universal traits closely themed to that Soulbind's nature, and there are many open slots throughout the tree that effectively serve as wild cards, allowing you to insert conduits to customize each Soulbind to suit your playstyle and preferences. A given conduit can only be used once per Soulbind, though the same conduits can be added to, into different Soulbind's trees without restriction. This does not require earning more than one copy of the conduit. Once it's in your collection, you can place it as you wish. If you want to rebuild your soulbind trees once per week, you'll be able to clear all of their conduits with a separate cooldown per soulbind. But once you've decided on your desired conduit placements, we want to ensure that the system offers as much flexibility as other existing talent systems, so you'll be able to switch which soulbind is active or redirect the flow of anima through a soulbind's tree, essentially respecting them. Okay, anytime you visit your sanctum, and if you have a different soulbind per spec, or a different active trait path with a given soulbind, that will be saved on a per-specialization basis, and will automatically change whenever and wherever you change specializations. We're hoping to have an initial version of this system active in next week's beta, so not this week, with further, with further updates and a polished user interface in the weeks to follow. As always, thank you for your feedback. We're looking forward to seeing yada yada yada, something make Shadowlands better, whatever. You're welcome. I did it. I'm just kidding. No, we did it. <laughs> so, obviously, thanks to uh, a lot of reasonable feedback, um, you know, I've given it many, uh, many, many of everybody have given uh, plenty of feedback on this. Um, that the whole destructibility thing wasn't great. Uh, we had different kinds of conversations on how best to solve that, and it, and it looks like Blizzard took like some of the best of that stuff, such as uh, pretty much making it like kind of a glyph system, but something that so it's it's uh, it's a little weird. I'm, I'm gonna try to find uh, some of the highlighted stuff. Well, I'm not gonna highlight. It. I think I remember most of it. So from the sounds of it, so if we want to respec our conduits, as in like take take this tree. And reset it like we can we will be able to uh, redirect the flow or otherwise make the different choices as long as we just go back to our covenant sanctum but as for resetting the conduits basically uh, you know killing off all the conduits and resetting you know whatever we can only do that once a week with a separate cooldown so it doesn't sound like it's something that resets every Tuesday or Wednesday in the EU it's something separate you know you, you do it and then you have you incur that sort of like long cooldown um, let's see what, what are what are some other highlights um, this one I uh, this one I like a lot there will be more than one source for most conduits so I'm gonna I'm just gonna kind of throw out some guesses and say that Perhaps like the basic conduits or, or yeah, basic conduits, those will just have one source and you get it from a quest uh, or a quest line or something like that. But when it comes to uh, higher level stuff, I'm going to presume that some of these more epic conduits that, we, that we're seeing, you might see one from raids. But you'll also be able to maybe get it from uh, high-end PvP. And maybe there might be a third source. You might be able to get one from like each sort of thing, <laughs> each sort of each sort of gameplay mode. 
Another highlight is this whole thing about, um, well, not earning a more thing. Uh, here we go. The power, the power of their effects will increase with the item level of the, of the conduit. So, the whole thing about ranks, it's not. It, it wasn't what we think. Um, this is more like a semi backend system. So think of it like this: we there are fifteen ranks of these conduits. Supposedly, there are typically three tiers or three seasons, something like that. Right, sort of. <laughs> In a given, um, in a given expansion. So just think of just think of like season one as okay. We're going to get like, uh, you know, five ranks worth of these conduits. It's going to be something like that. So th this whole thing about ranks, as far as I, as far as it looks, um, it's either going to be we're either going to see fifteen of these different kind of ranks, um in a season and then the next season we're going to see like 15 more ranks and then later we're going to see 15 more ranks i'm kind of thinking to myself though it's just going to be based on how many different item level brackets that there are so it's not going to be like 15 different you know it's not going to be separations of like five item level it might be separations of like 15 item level or, or something like that so um if anything it's going to be feel fairly passive however the whole idea of having to Refarm content that's harder in order to get like the better conduits and stuff that part Gets that part can feel like slightly frustrating Although it really depends on just how many different conduits they're going to be are they going to expand on the conduit list because it's going to um, It's going to make me wonder Okay, am I going to see upgraded conduits in new content or do I need to farm instead of like you know, um, a Mythic 5, I need to farm like a Mythic 15 in order to get the new conduit or something like that, or is it just going to scale up with it? There are, there's, I think that's where you're going to find a little bit of a mess, a little bit of friction when it comes to, you know, some players are like, oh yeah, cool, I'll, I'll be able to, you know, get these conduits, great, because I'm a Mythic player. Meanwhile, other players at my level or lower will be like, well, shoot, we only do like normal mode rating, so our conduits are only going to be so good. However, the conduits themselves, you know, they do offer some pretty nasty and cool effects. Their game-breaking ability is a little bit arguable. I mean, like some conduits come to mind. I'm sure that you folks at home and elsewhere can think of conduits that can be uh, extremely powerful uh, at higher ranks. Um, whereas other conduits, they don't really scale like nearly as well. So the matter of how that's balanced, that's all numbers. So they can change that whenever the hell they feel like. Maybe another thought that's come to mind just now is that maybe uh, the ranks aren't going to be so dependent on your difficulty. Maybe a certain rank is earned from, you know, a raid. No matter what the difficulty is, you get this kind of conduit per raid. Um, and, and, and then in the next tier or whatever, you get like a different one. I don't know. It, 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 there could be many ways that, the, that this could go about. The whole thing about ranks, it might get watered down into something totally different. Where, you, where we just might see like rank one, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four, depending on the season that you picked it up in. It's just a matter of when. When do those upgrades occur? Am I going to get a conduit upgrade because I'm moving up from normal to heroic to mythic? And I get a certain source there? Or is it when I move from Season 1 to Season 2, I happen to kill a boss that drops that conduit upgrade. Cool, I get this new rank. Is that is it going to work like that? Don't know. That's that's totally up for discussion and uh, we'll have to see. The data mining might give us like some indicators of this. Uh, it's already giving us an indicator of these ranks. Um, but you know, we're definitely going to have to see how things look 
uh, next week when this first comes in and we might see like an entire uh, revamp of how those condos work under the hood. So how do I feel about this? I guess I should just get to that. How do I feel about this? Um, conduits are going to feel passive, except for the part of going back to your clubhouse and uh, installing these conduits in your thingamajigger into these dudes' backs, however you, however you want to work it. Uh, it's going to feel passive. Once you start, once we start earning these conduits, it's just going to be like, cool, I killed a boss thing and now I'm getting something out of it. And that's great. Um, and that seems to be about it. It's, it does seem like a pretty passive system, except in the case of, oh my god, I really want this particular conduit. I only do this kind of content, and now I don't get access to it. So it, there are going to be like continued challenges, maybe, uh, to, uh, to get us into content that's, like I said, outside of our comfort zone, outside of our box. How much friction is gonna how much friction is going to be there hopefully it's not like blood of the enemy kind or or conflict and strife levels of friction where you know you're, you're doing you're like really hard grinding the thing that, that you're not uh, fond of doing it's just a matter of did it drop and I think that's uh, that, that's kind of the most uh, most important thing here is that you're not going to be like grinding, grinding, grinding so you can get some sort of achievement and then that way you'll be eligible to get this new conduit. You simply just get it. Um, but there are going to be different sources, uh, PvP, reputations, world or world quests, and so on and so forth. But again, how much overlap is there going to be? I think that's going to be like super important. Earning a more powerful version of a conduit you already have will simply upgrade that conduit in your collection. Uh, from from what Blizzard had said earlier too. Uh, just in case uh, you guys weren't sure, uh, conduits are going to be on a separate loot table. So, like, if you just happen to get it, you get it. It's not like, oh, I really wanted this weapon and I got a, and I got something, but it just happened to be a conduit instead. It's going to be on a separate roll. So you might get, oh, I got the weapon and I got the conduit. Score. So it's going to be more that situation. That is a good question. Are the conduits going to be like a bind on account thing, or is it something that that we're going to have to like earn and re-earn and, and other such things? Uh, they didn't say anything about it being uh, account wide, and I uh, we're going to have a conversation about that, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Um, I'm of the mindset of get it your darn self. I'm a fan of having fewer account bound systems when it comes to power. Uh, when it comes to like cosmetics, you know, whatever. But in this case, it's power, and the way I see it, or you know, this is just my opinion. All right, folks. Uh, but in my opinion, the idea of uh, account-bound power like that not so great. In this case, though, because you're seeing so many different sources of getting these things, there's going to be a lot of stuff that we'll just be able to get um, semi-naturally. Uh, without without so much hard farming, but I yeah I get it. There's going to be friction. People are going to be people are going to complain because conduits are adding equipment slots. It's more equipment slots, more stuff to farm for. Thankfully, you know we only need to get it once, but there's still going to be uh, that nagging feeling for sure. Yeah, I guess I'm not fond of having that account uh, account ban because it's it's a bit too cheaty. Take 8.3.5 or whatever for example. Um, they didn't exactly make Essence's account-wide. What they did is make accessibility 
um, you know, much more flexible as soon as you unlocked it the first time. In this case, it's different. With conduits, there's simply going to be all sorts of different sources, and it's not going to be nearly as farmy or restrictive as it will be for essences, at least on paper. You know, it remains to be seen. But that's pretty much going to be it for me. I think I've ranted on this like enough times and talked in, in enough circles. But what do you folks think? Uh, do, are you happy with these changes? What other questions do you have that, that I missed? And I know that there are plenty of those. So leave those in the comment below. So that way we can get more feedback going and we can, you know, continue to badger Blizzard with all this feedback. So that way they can do pivots and changes as we go. So by the time Conduits and Shadowlands goes live, it'll be something that just about everyone can enjoy. So again, please leave a comment below, like the video if you enjoyed yourself, and otherwise I'll see you guys for the next thing that I do. Oh, and uh, don't forget to subscribe for more of this and all things Warcraft. We'll see you guys later. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay breezy. So often you listen to Soul So Breezy's video now, or the audio of it, I want to add a couple of my own thoughts to it. Generally, I totally agree with him. Generally, totally. Anyway, I agree with him with regards to the alt aspect where your alts that are, in my case, I have to put it a little differently. If an alt is another class, then you should be required to earn your own conduits. If your alt is a alt of the same class. In my case, I tend to play quite a few warlocks, and I know that there are quite a few people that have many hunters and warriors and so forth. You should be able to collect at least the base version of a conduit. That's what I think of it. To start out on your alt. I get that it's a little difficult to implement on Blizzard's side, but alt friendliness is something that Blizzard should take into account. So say you get rank 3 of a conduit on your main, it should automatically unlock rank 1 in your UI, in your account-wide UI for that class of that conduit. Same way as you can buy the rank 3 essences now on your alts of the same class if you go to mother. So the mechanics in the background are there in some way. It's just about tweaking the mechanics and the UI or whatnot. And then you can go and activate them with your respective NPC much as you go and and uh, pay the currency to buy the rank 3 essences. So let's say you go and buy the rank 1 conduit for 100 gold, just so you don't uh, pay nothing. And then you thereby unlock the rank 1 version of the essence that you have on your then. If you get a rank 1 on your main, that automatically transfers and unlocks to your account-wide um, collection. With regards to the cosmetic stuff, I totally agree that this needs to be a account-wide thing, definitely. But you shouldn't have to go out and farm 
cosmetic stuff again. There might be a valid point where they say that you have to go out and farm cosmetics for a different armor type. I could see that, but generally cosmetics are, are a thing that uh, should be account-wide. With regards to the one-week limit to respec, I guess I can live with it. Overall, I'm very happy that the conduits don't work like relics from Legion, where you have to have a item to replace another item that's been socketed already, that we are finally going to get a UI, a collection, as I stated quite a few times before. I've wanted that since I was introduced to the feature, and having seen the progress that Essences and its collection UI and application UI brought, it's a step back, at least one step back, maybe two or three steps back even, for Blizzard, had they gone live with the conduits in the way that they originally intended it, meaning having the conduits basically work like relics. So that's my two cents on the topic of the conduit changes. My queen, they have arrived. Wonderful. Set the time stone, won't you? I admit that in the past I've been a nasty. They weren't kidding when they called me well. A witch, but you'll find that presently I'm queen under the sea, beloved by my people and the fish. True, yes. And I fortunately know a little magic. It's a talent that I always have possessed. Now, Priscilla, please don't laugh. I use it on behalf of the miserable, the lonely, and the weak. Pathetic. Poor unfortunate souls, in pain, in need. This one longing to be stronger, that one wants to rule the world, and do I help them? Yes, indeed. Those poor unfortunate souls, so sad, so true. They come flocking to my palace, crying spells, a shout of please, and I help them? Yes, I do. Now it's happened once or twice, someone couldn't pay the price, and I'm afraid they ended up as old fish bows. Yes, I've had the odd complaint, but on the whole I've been a saint to those poor unfortunate souls. The men up there don't have a lot of power. They think a girl who's stronger is a chore. Yet on land, I understand you lost a very tender man. And after all, dear, what is idle power for? Come on, the Alliance and the Horde will never help you. They actively avoid it when they can. But they dote and swoon and fawn on that Jaina who's your pawn. It's she who comes to me who takes a chance. Come on, you poor unfortunate soul. Go ahead, choose a door. I'm a very busy woman and I haven't got all day. It won't cost much, just a form. You poor unfortunate soul, it's sad but true. 
If you want to get revenge, my sweet, you've got to pay the toll. Take a gulp and take a breath and go ahead and sign the scroll. Nugget darlings, now I've got her, boys. The queen is on the roll. This poor unfortunate song. It turns as far as commands of the Azeroth Six max monster totus in the form as to see. A place where all the characters that we have ever known go to. The afterlife of Warcraft. Now, as the link has been broken, we'll be visiting prematurely and almost certainly we'll be seeing some of the figures that we have seen before. So, today I'll be giving you top 10 villains we hope to see in the Shadowlands. As characters like Artis or Keltas are already confirmed, I'll be covering the other ones, some lesser known ones and some of the more iconic ones. So without further ado, let's get into the lore. Number 10. Darkon Dratir a very significant character, yet not widely known, this guy is probably the greatest traitor in the history of Azeroth, and I doubt there is anyone out there that doesn't consider him a villain. He single-handedly was the most responsible for the death of like 90% of all High Elves and the catastrophe that Artis had unleashed onto Quartalas. While of course it was the Scourge that invaded, Darkan assassinated key figures, which might I add, he actually enjoyed it, and he allowed the Undead Army to go past the Elven defenses, which were almost impenetrable at the time. He was so bad that he attempted to betray Artis, but was then killed three times, ultimately serving the Scourge and then being defeated once again. While there is a case for Evendred as he had an incredible ego and ambition, I have no doubt that he was sent directly to the Maw, the realm for the irredeemable souls. Number 9. Garitos. The fabled Grand Marshal, known for his racism and hatred for the elves, notable for quotes such as The only good non-human is a dead non-human. And the even more famous The lesser races must be purged from the kingdom. Despite all of that, he was a troubled character. No one could doubt his patriotism as he was put in a hopeless situation, fighting dreadlords and the scourge on one side, demons, his soldiers turning into zombies and ultimately him being betrayed by Sylvanas. Despite his terrible treatment of the elves, he really wasn't that evil of a character, so I can see him being sent to the Purgatory, Revendred. He lost his family in the Orcish War and can blame the elves for it, further developing his perspective of human superiority, which can no doubt be attributed to pride. Despite being a relatively minor character, I could see him making an appearance as Sylvanas will be the central character of the expansion and his story is closely tied to that of the Banshee Queen. Number 8. Edwin Van Cleef 
Originally just a stonemason and rogue, Edwin went from an architect rebuilding Stormwind to leading a criminal organization building a massive warship bent on destroying Stormwind. While he wasn't initially a villain, you could even say he was a good guy, he definitely turned into one by harassing, looting and killing innocents, as well as, well, trying to bomb a city with a population of millions full of civilians. Ultimately, he was killed when his base operations was raided and his head was chopped off. While his legacy remained and he died before the Machine of Death broke, he was most certainly sent to the Shadowlands, which realm is uncertain, but I doubt he would be sent to the Maw as he wasn't exactly that bad, he didn't commit terrible atrocities, he wasn't warlike, full Mandraxus, so I see him as a perfect candidate for Revendreth. It was most definitely his pride and ego that led to him not trying to back down and not seeking a compromise. Number 7. Adelus Blackmore One of the original villains of the Warcraft series. As the master of Durnhold Keep, this was the guy that took control as a baby and had raised him. However, despite giving him everything, he had essentially enslaved him and just used him as a gladiator and overall treated him in a terrible manner. Ultimately, he died when Troll freed the Horde and stormed Dornhold Keep, but not without first killing Troll's friend Retta Foxton that had previously freed him. Adelas was no doubt an evil and a sadistic character, but I wouldn't say he was irredeemable that he would be sent to the Maw. I can see him most likely in Revendred, where he would have a chance to make up for his crimes. Now, if Troll plays a role in this expansion, the appearance of Blackmore could totally be a possibility, as this could make an interesting questline as Troll had done so much, but his relationship with his adoptive father no doubt scarred him and probably haunts him up to this day. Number 6. Random Meme Blackhand Dalrent Blackhand, together with his brother Mame, were the sons of Warchief Blackhand and the leaders of the Black Dude Green Clan. When Troll decided to start a new page, to create a peaceful faction and to focus on diplomacy, these guys decided to ally with the son of Deathwing Nefarian and to embrace the ideals of the old horde, meaning conquest, demonic bloodlust and overall just chaos. In simple terms, they didn't really see anything bad with the old horde. For a while, they referred to themselves as the true horde and they were a serious thorn in the side of Warchief Troll. Ultimately, both brothers were slain and they haven't been significant in a while, but as iconic characters I can see them making a small appearance within the Shadowlands. Even though they did commit terrible crimes, as they were warlike for their entire lives, I can see them appearing in Maldraxxus where it is literally a free-for-all and with their history they could definitely be making a difference there. Number 5. Ner'zhul One of the most influential orcs of all time. He was notable as a shaman and a chieftain of the Shadowmoon clan, but everyone really knows him as the very first Lich King. Nerzul was one of the initial orcs to be triggered by the Legion and he would subsequently deceive the rest of the Horde. Later, he abandoned the orcs and tried to escape with his followers, literally causing the destruction of Draenor, creating Outland as we know it today. Then he was captured by Kil'jaeden, turned into a Lich King and was essentially behind the plague and most of the atrocities committed by Arthas. Now that both Arthas and the Lich King are gone, no doubt his soul is most likely within the Shadowlands. If he disappeared completely now, when the machine has been broken, he is most likely in the Maw, but regardless of the timing, I don't see Ner'zhul anywhere else than the Maw with all the various crimes that he had committed. The guy literally destroyed an entire planet, helped corrupt an entire race and unleashed the 
those invasions and helped orchestrate the scourge that committed all those terrible atrocities. Despite being manipulated through most of it, Nerzol is most definitely guilty. Number 4. Xavius Lord Xavius used to be a highborn counselor to Queen Ashara, and not just any counselor, but one of the most powerful sorcerers in the entire world at the time. He was blindly loyal to the Queen, and when the Burning Legion waited, he was on the front line. As he failed in his task, Sargeras punished him, torturing him and transforming him into a satyr, essentially creating the satyrs as a race. He would then turn other elves into this new demonic race, and it was not long after that Malfurion had transformed him into a tree, and he was sent to the bottom of the sea during the Sundering, yet he survived and he would return once again. 10,000 years later, he would begin corrupting the Emerald Dream, turning it into a nightmare, becoming known as the Nightmare Lord. Once again, he would be defeated, but he would return in Legion, now allied fully with the old gods, and, well, you guessed it, only to be defeated again. Now, it isn't certain if Xavius is actually completely dead, but many speculate that he is, which could mean that we will see him in the Shadowlands. Most definitely within them all, not only with the timing, but also as he tried to first ally with the Legion to conquer the world, then with the old gods, and throughout all of his existence, all he has been doing is just changing allegiances and trying to mess up the entire planet. With all of that in consideration, I don't see Xavius anywhere else other than the Maw. Number 3. Keltuzad Everyone knows Keltuzad as a lich, the right hand of Artis, but there is just a moment in his history as for the most of his life he was actually a highly successful and powerful mage of Dalaran. He practiced the Forbidden Arts and was one of the first to turn to Nerzul and was single-handedly responsible for most of the plague spread in Lordran. He organized a fake religion and got the downtrodden to follow him, while at the same time building connections with influential people to establish an infrastructure for the Scourge. Kiltuzad was later killed by Artis, then resurrected as a lich, and then he played an even more important role with his flying fortress Nexramus. Ultimately, he was defeated, but we all knew he wasn't dead as his phylactery was still around. Here is the thing though, there is a big theory going around that his soul is lost in the Shadowlands and that while he may not be officially dead, he could access the realm of the dead in a similar way the Liching once did. There is also a possibility that when the death machine broke, he was just sucked into the maw as he was already lingering around. Without a doubt, a guy like Keltuzad belongs in nothing less than the maw as he is completely irredeemable, but if he got into the Shadowlands willingly, I can't see him in Maldraxxus. This realm is the home to necromancers and he is one of the original human ones, and as the Lich King used it to call upon the Scourge from here, he no doubt had connections to Maldraxxus before as he was key in forming the Scourge. Due to his significance in the mysterious storyline, I definitely see Keltuzad making an appearance within the Shadowlands. Number 2. Deathwing The dragon that caused the cataclysm, that entirely reshaped the world and that nearly destroyed everything and unleashed the old gods upon us. It took so much effort and so many forces to be able to bring him down as he was already defeated many times in the past. Deathwing is such a key figure as he played a role in the War of the Ancients, the Orcish Invasions, the Invasion of Outland and now in his very own event, the Cataclysm. Long ago, he used to be the leader of the Black Dragon fight and was known as Nathaniel the Earthwater, but he was corrupted and not long after, he had gone completely insane. 
All in all, he was a Tanji character that wasn't necessarily evil, but was just driven mad. Still, with all the atrocities that we had committed, I can't see him going to Revendred to redeem himself due to just so much trouble he had caused us. However, it is possible that the Jailer could see that most of it he didn't commit by his own free will, and that instead he used to be a noble dragon that was corrupted. He might then be cleansed and even brought to one of the good realms, although honestly with all his atrocities I do doubt it. Now, a dragon aspect in the Shadowlands might raise an eyebrow for a lot of people, but I don't see why he wouldn't be, as after all he was just an enhanced dragon that was native to Azeroth and not some void lord or some titan-like figure. And lastly, number 1, Garrosh Hellscream. Originally only the son of Gromash and overall a tragic character, very few had expected that within a few short years of his discovery on Outland, he would arise as the leader of the Northern Expedition and only a bit after he would become a war chief. Within the next few years he would empower the Horde and turn it almost entirely towards war and military conquest. Unsurprisingly, Ganache was actually successful in many regards and even wiped out land's hubs like Terramore, but of course in order to achieve this success he had to utilize many quite immoral measures. From using a mana bomb to executions and terrible treatment of most old races, he just as quickly arose to be one of the biggest villains of the faction, which prompted the civil war and the siege of Orgrimmar. If all of that was not enough, he then created the entire mess with the wars of Draenor, which could not be forgiven, where he was finally defeated by Thrawn. Now, in regards to which realm he could be in, it is incredibly hard to say. My opinion is the more as he really committed many atrocities, but at the same time he was warlike to the core, which would get him to Modraxxus, and was as egotistical as you can get, which could get him to Revenant. Still, with all the atrocities, I see the Maw as the most likely destination. Despite the realm, I can forgive him for most of his atrocities, but definitely not for the death of Cairn Bloodhoof. See you next time. Thank you so much, Soul So Breezy, Charm, and Doran's movies. I totally forgot to thank Soul earlier. I'm sorry about that. Thank you to all the content creators that lets me use their content on the show. Must be said, can't be said often enough really. So today we had the following contributors. Hero Maradex, Soul So Breezy, Charm, Doron's Movies, and obviously Paddy. You can't forget Paddy Madsen because she is just awesome. And now at the end, as I mentioned earlier, as I mentioned at the beginning, we have the lore segment from Noble 87. And as I mentioned at the beginning as well, this is a segment that for some people can be considered spoilery. So I'm going to warn you that if you do not want to get spoiled with regards to the lore of Shadowlands, this is where you should stop listening. Maybe you want to come back at a later time, I would love that. But if you don't want to get spoiled, thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and Dark Lady watch over you. For the others, the segment that Mobile is going to talk about is about the Pantheon of Death, which is similar to the Pantheon of Order, the one that we know, the Titan Pantheon. So. And apparently there are more than just these two pantheons, 
but I'm not sure how far he's going to go into it. I just know, or I assume, that with the change from quote-unquote the Pantheon that we've always known since we got introduced to the Titans, to the Titan Pantheon in, I think, Ulduar was the first time the Pantheon was mentioned. I'm not totally sure, but I think that's when it was by Algalon. Now it's changed to Pantheon of, and then we have order, disorder, death, um, life, and all the, the six forces. So I wonder how many more we are going to get a hint at in Shadowlands, how, how far they are going to expand the basic universal layout. If you look at the map that there is in the cosmological chart that they put into the Chronicles number one, volume one, you can see the different forces that are referred to. As I said, uh, light, death, void, nature, undeath, fell, and so forth. So I think there are like six major forces, and it wouldn't surprise me if they each have a pantheon connected to them, or if they stem from creations that these respective pantheons were involved in. But anyway, let's listen to Noble 87th segment about the Pantheon of Death. Here is Noble 87. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Corpse Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music, and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at mail at gmail.com or on Twitter at CorpsRunRadio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash CorpsRunRadio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com, along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Hello everyone. This video right here is going to be very speculative because we don't know a whole lot about this so-called Pantheon of Death. So don't worry, the title is not an immediate spoiler. This is a lot of Shadowlands Alpha information and a bit of speculation. So what is this Pantheon of Death all about? Well, during an interview, which you can find over at Zoltan TV, an interview with Ian Hastakostas, this was said. Part of what we're going to learn as we go into the Shadowlands is okay. you know, the origins of this place, the relationship between the four rulers of the different realms that we journey to, and their history with the Arbiter and the Jailer, like how the Shadowlands came to be, just as Azeroth was shaped by the Titans, as we've come to discover, the Shadowlands also were shaped by forces. And so there are connections that tie the different leaders to each other. And that's part of this whole new story and this whole universe that we're going to explore. So I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to provide any spoilers or specific answers. Okay. And that's not <laughs> genuinely, I'm not confirming that there's a connection. But for sure, there are parallels between the Titan pantheon that 
rules over our plane of existence and that we've seen in Azeroth and, and sort of the pantheon of death that has ruled over the Shadowlands. There are parallels there that are going to be fun to explore. A connection between the different leaders, the Arbiter and the Jailer. A so-called pantheon of death, parallel to the Titan pantheon. What we know of the Titans is that they traveled across the cosmos, bringing order to the universe while seeking out more of their kin, slumbering spirits hosted within planets. They then stumbled upon Azeroth, a planet with a spirit inside, but also infected by the old gods. They made it their mission to clean up the planet, transform and shape it to their design, so that the spirits could have a chance at life. Drawing a parallel between the Titans and the Pantheon of Death, one would imagine that they too stumbled or came upon the Shadowlands, a realm that's been around since forever. And if they took similar actions like the Titans have done, then perhaps they also modified and changed the afterlife, molded the Shadowlands to fit their design, their ultimate plans, whatever they might be. Now we do know the members of the Titan Pantheon, but who exactly makes up this so-called Pantheon of Death? That's not been mentioned going by the information shown right now, so disregarding any pantheons that might show up later. The prime candidates, that would be the ruling bodies of the different realms. In Bastion, this would be the Archon. In Maldrexus, they have the Primus. Ardenweald has their Winter Queen. Revendreft has Sire the Nephrius. And then potentially, there are the Arbiter in Oribus and the Jailer in the Maw. Their function, their realms and organizations, they're quite diverse. In Oribos, high above amidst the swirling vortex of souls that made way to the Shadowlands, there sits the Arbiter. She is the one that lays your soul bare and decides what pocket dimension of the Shadowlands, what realm your soul belongs to. The purpose, a whole lot of the citizens of Oribos like to call it, the purpose of the Arbiter, answering her call, answering her will. In an instant, the judgment is made upon your soul and your send-off, bringing with you a powerful resource, which is called Anima. Anima is a soul's experience, so to say. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. This anima is what fuels the Shadowlands, fuels its operations. And normally, this will be distributed amongst the different realms. But somewhere along the Legion time periods, the machine of death got broken. This could be with pretty much any event in Legion. Perhaps like the opening of the Tomb of Sargeras, or Greymane shattering the soul cage, the magical lantern Sylvanas obtained from Helia to try and slave a year. Or perhaps it was Illidan opening up the rift between Azeroth and Argus, or Sargeras stamina world. That part is uncertain, but its effects are clear. All of that anima is now drawn into the Maw, the domain of the Jailer. This domain is where the Arbiter sends the souls that are considered irredeemable to enjoy an afterlife of torment. When Sylvanas killed herself at the end of Wrath the Lich King, she found herself presumably trapped here, even ran into the spirit of Arthas, but her bargain with the Valkyr, and now, as we know, her allegiance with the Jailer, it got her out of there to set events in motion that brought us to Shadowlands. The Jailer itself is like the boogeyman of the realm. No one ever escapes the Maw once sent in there, so not a whole lot is known about him or the realm. Safe to say, it's, it's not a realm that you want to find yourself in. And now, regardless of what life you've led, regardless of past deeds, this is where the souls end up. Which in turn, causing quite an anima drought for the other realms. The cause of the droughts and the things going on in the Maw. Of course, they're not known to everybody, but luckily for them, we are the Maw Walkers. The first to escape that hellish domain. While helping them out with their problems and figuring out what is going on, we also learn how these different rulers run their domains and what they're all about. Bastion has the Archon. 
Kyrestia the Firstborn, the first of the winged Kyrians. It is by the Archon's will that Bastion carries out its purpose. She comes with her paragons, like the paragon of courage, of humility, service, wisdom, purity and loyalty. The souls sent here are those that in life had a natural calling to service in one way or another. Souls, like Ufer the Lightbringer for example, they are sent here to walk the path of the Kyrian and earn their wings. To be a Kyrian means shedding your past burdens and seek virtue through meditation, reflection, but also giving up parts of who we used to be. Those able to successfully earn their wings and join the ranks of the Ascended, they could find themselves with a new job. You could see yourself fulfill a brand new role in the afterlife, like becoming a Valkyr, as this is the place where the original Valkyrs come from. In order to guide those spirits between the living world and the next, one must be without judgments, which is why they're asked to give up their memories of the past, to give up who they used to be, and embrace the will of the Archon. Not all make it though. Rarely, those once bright souls, they fail to complete their rite of passage and they darken. They become lost, wandering the plains of Bastion to lament. They are called the Forsworn, and while at some point it was rare for a blue smurf to become a purple smurf, the anima droughts, as well as the effects of the Jailer, it has more of them turn. More and more wondering why they should let go of who they used to be, if the path of the Archon is actually for them. Even Ufer has become Forsworn, but the last playthrough that we did, it had the details of the Forsworn locked behind the Covenant. The point being that more are wondering if the ruling government of Bastion, if the path of the Kyrian, is truly the way to go. Meldraxus, that has the Primus, who's been missing for a while now. A master strategist and tactician, he was nearly unbeatable on the field of battle and served as the collective leader of all five of the Necrolords ruling houses. There is the House of Constructs with its ruler Margrave Garmal, the House of Rituals with Margrave Sindane, the House of Plagues with Margrave Stradama, a house in ruins, the House of Eyes with Margrave Akarek, a house in ruins, and the House of the Chosen with Margrave Craxus. The Arbiter will send souls here that are relentless, unyielding, live the life in search and pursuit of power. Not so much about evil or good spirits, but rather strength above all, both inward and outwards, they will find a way here. Examples would be souls like Draka and Lady Vush. This is the heart of the Shadowlands military might, the birthplace of necromantic magic and home to the Necrolord Covenant. Might is right, and with the Primus missing, some of the houses have decided to use their power not in the defense of Shadowlands, they actually want to conquer it. They've assaulted Bastion, an attack that we help fight back, and we're sent here to figure out what's up in Meldraxxus, why they're on the attack. We team up with the House of the Chosen, the one that's not down with these plans of conquest, and through our adventure, we come across a mysterious runeblade hidden inside some stone, left behind crafted even by the Primus. It is our mission to reforge it and gain access to the seat of the Primus, for whoever holds this ancient fortress commands the armies of the Shadowlands. We do just that, place the runeblade in an ancient stone, and while the Primus is missing, we do get a message that needs to make its way to the ruler of Ardenwields. And not just its ruler, also its creator. The Winter Queen stretched out her hands and created this domain. The Tyrannon were amongst the first to grow, digging their roots deep and lifting walls high. They built the groves and were not the only ones who were given this life in the Shadowlands by the Winter Queen. Like the rest of the Shadowlands, Ardenweald is also suffering from the Anima Drought. 
Once it empowered a cycle of rebirth, spirits connected to nature, they would be sent here by the Arbiter. A spirit like Scenarius, for example, they would spend some time here in Ardenweald, recovering, regrowing, until they were ready to return to the Emerald Dream and eventually Azeroth. That's why Scenarius was able to come back after being slain by Gromar's Hellscream. And it's not just Azeroth spirits of the wild that find a way here, but now with the anima shortage, with their power being low, hard choices need to be made. Choices as to which spirits and groves will be fed the last precious drops of anima, and which will fade away forever. That stretches the Winter Queen a little bit thin, so getting an audience with her to pass on the message is a little bit difficult. We fill up our time here, helping out in Ardenweald, dealing with the Night Fae Covenant, until we finally do reach the Queen. The details of the message, they're not entirely shared. She does mention that Ardenweald's anima is barely enough to sustain their groves, let alone contribute to keeping the Banished One held. The news we have brought is troubling. She has used her own power to confront this drought, to save what spirits she could, to spare what worlds she could. More must be diverted to keep the banished one held. And yet, still more anima is needed, more than Arnewield has to spare. Sire Denefrius, he is a master of anima extraction. We are sent into Revendreft with a request to grant what anima he can. Revendreft, a domain not quite as bad as the Maw, but still pretty bad. Sinful souls are sent here by the Arbiter to pay the price for their past deeds. Souls like, for example, Kilfa Sunstrider. The Venfir, they have the ways of making you pay. Some successfully repent and are offered a new path in the Shadowlands, perhaps even becoming Venfir themselves. While others, they fail and are considered irredeemable, they are sent down into the Maw. Revendreft is made up of seven distinct districts, each presided over by a harvester, a court ruled over by the sire, but when we arrive, something's not quite right. Prince Renafal, once a popular member within the Nafrius court, was the first Venvir crafted by the master's own hand, but all of that changed when the anima dried up. Convinced that his master is behind the drought, he rallied a formidable force to lead the rebellion to succeed Sire Nefrius and make the anima flow once more. He might have been the first, but the other Venvir, they were also created by the Nefrius. Forged from the souls of the redeemed, they were turned into his likeness. Ancient beyond measure, the founder of Revendreft is one of the most powerful beings in all of the Shadowlands. He beseeches Azeroth's champions to help him quell the rebellion that threatens to destroy their way of life. Which means that there are two sides to pick in Revendreft. And as it turns out, Sire Nefrius is actually in league with the Jailer. He's been depriving his people of anima and inflicting a drought upon all of the Shadowlands for some grand purpose. Which is potentially the Jailer, the Banished One breaking out of the Maw, the zone that will be available at max level and is not available for testing quite yet. All we've really seen of it is the Tower of Torgast. Once, the Jailer kept only the most dangerous souls in the cosmos confined in this eternal prison. Now though, some of Azeroth's greatest heroes are trapped here, and we need to rescue them from the Jailer's tower before they expense their very souls. Other secrets lie within the tower as well, but they're yet to be revealed. And to be cast into the Maw is to be doomed to a bleak eternity. It is a tumultuous, hopeless land where the vilest souls in the cosmos are imprisoned forever. Should the ancient evil chained here break free, all of reality will be consumed. So, what can we take away from all this information? 
Well, we know that there's a connection between the different leaders. As the news about the jailer, the influence of the Ma, it sends us throughout the different zones where they're trying to work together to prevent this. From the acknowledgement of the Archon, to the warnings left behind by the Primus. The Winter Queen, well aware of the Banished One, containing him with Anima, and then Revendreft refusing to offer aid. A parallel with the Pantheon and their ordering of Azeroth, to the Pantheon of Death and their ordering of the Shadowlands, that is showcased in multiple locations. Ardenweald, it's the most straightforward one, as it outright states that the Winter Queen created the domain, meaning that it didn't exist at the beginning. The Nephrius has created the other Venfir in his image meaning that they weren't there in the beginning. The Archon is the first of the winged Kyrians, meaning that more followed after. Only Maldrexus, it doesn't seem to have outright source behind the creation of its citizens or the realm. We do know that this is the birthplace of necromantic magic, and perhaps the disappearance of the Primus that could explain that lack of information. The Jailer is presumably referred to as the Banished One, and if we are looking for parallels, perhaps we should also look at how the Titans and the Keepers, how they locked away things that stood in their path or bring order to the world. The Old Gods, for example, they were imprisoned, while the Elemental Lords, they were sent off to the Elemental Plane, a plane of existence which was created by the Keepers. So could it be that the Ma was also molded and created to house their problems? That of course begs the question, what exactly did the Jailer do to deserve such a fate? And what methods did they use to contain him? The Jailer of the Damned. A grim task. Which I have failed. Now the Eternal Veil screams, torn asunder by her. Within the realm of shadow lies the darkest of terrors, which should never be set free. The craftsmanship of the Primus has already been pointed out to have some similarities to artifacts that we've known in the past, even the Jailer himself. His disappearance might have very well been at the hand of the Jailer and his allies to make sure that the Helm of Domination cannot be reforged. Imagine a connection between the powers of the Lich King and the Jailer itself. This would give a whole different meaning to the line There must always be a Lich King. Not just to keep the Scourge on Azeroth in check, but to contain the Jailer in the Maw as well. Truly be a Jailer of the Damned. Does of course leave the question about the motivation to all of this. I personally would love to see a story in which we discover that the handiwork of this pantheon of death, creating a machine which generates anima from our souls, an arbiter that judges us and places us in different pockets of the Shadowlands, that all of that gets a morality check. Who are these mighty beings to judge the souls of the mortals? Who has given them the right to change the Shadowlands? To decide that one soul is irredeemable, one is really naughty, one is all about power, and oh that one, yeah, yeah just send him off to party with the angels. Learning that the Shadowlands as it is right now is not the way it's supposed to be. And that Sylvanas' motivations are in direction of setting us free. Break the wheel, the endless cycle, and free us from the tyranny of the pantheon of death so we can go to the real Shadowlands, as it was supposed to be. This world is a prison. That's what I will personally find a really interesting storyline. However, lines like, should this ancient evil chained here break free, all of reality will be consumed. And lines like, The denizens of this realm are the key to restoring the balance between life 
and death, if their trust can be earned. Has me think that it's more realistic that the Jailer truly is a prime evil that we need to contain or defeat. That we need to stop Sylvanus and those allied to the Jailer from setting him free. That still leaves the question for Sylvanas' motivation. For her, the afterlife was said to be a realm of eternal torment. Apparently her actions as the Banshee Queen to try and claim vengeance upon Arthas, it made it so that the Arbiter judged her to the maw. Unless, of course, the Jailer itself dragged her in there. Either way, torment was waiting for her. By allying with the Jailer, joining his covenant and obtaining power, she is on the path of setting him free. With no Jailer in the maw, Perhaps no Maw or Bastion or Ouroboros or nothing like this entire machine gone. There would be no more torment waiting for her when she dies. There would be no more torment for any of us. But yeah, like I said at the start, it's, it's a whole lot of speculation. And I can't wait for more of the story to be revealed. And I will set us all free. I do hope that you enjoyed the story so far. And if you're looking for more details on all the things that we talked about today, then check out the Delayed Wild article in the description down below. And by all means, let me know what you think down below in the comments, especially about Sylvanas' motivation or perhaps the motivation of the Shadowlands. I'm really intrigued about this machine of death because... There has to be a purpose to it, right? Like we know that the Pantheon, they brought order to Azeroth because they wanted to give the spirit inside the planet. They wanted to give her a fighting chance. So why exactly was it that the Pantheon of Death decided to bring order to the Shadowlands, create this whole machine where the souls belong? Is this just the way it's supposed to be? Or is there a much larger plan behind it? I am really curious to find out. But yeah, thank you very much for watching, everybody. You could all subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time, see ya. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.